This is not the media. This is hell. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. So, did you hear that it was uh, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the Arctic Circle yesterday? No? Somehow missed that the world is setting records when it comes to being on fire? Okay, maybe you did hear that story, but you definitely heard, I'm certain you heard again about the small crowd size at Trump's campaign rally in Tulsa and all the excuses the administration came up with to explain away the less than enthusiastic numbers, as well as the reasons many claim the event did not attract large numbers, namely activists on TikTok and their K-pop stan allies. Because to the media, that's news, and it's the most important kind of news to the media. It's media-related. It's media news. There's really not a lot of celebrity star power when it comes to the Arctic going over 100 degrees for the first time. Sure, solar power is heating up the planet to a point that millions more lives will be in jeopardy as shorelines rise and access to food and safe water diminish. But the burning of the planet to a cinder just doesn't have the Q rating of a failed Trump rally. And that thing's ratings, they're so through the roof, the media will talk about it and have been talking about it for days, forging, foregoing, I should say, all international news for some deep navel-gazing at a singular campaign stop. The media loves media news, and they prioritize it. Look, I get it. I know it makes sense, because the news is covered by those in the media industry. The news is going to be media-oriented. Media events will get lots of coverage, because that's what people in the media are interested in. That's what they talk about. That's what they think is the most important news, because it is important to them and their media industry, their bottom line. So because they are so immersed in the media bubble, they believe that what is important to their industry and themselves in the media must be what's important to everyone. If the news was being covered by, say, people who are really into fishing, there would be a lot more stories on the biggest catch of the day, water temperatures, the impact of climate change on catching fish. Maybe they could finally do a deep investigation into what the deal is with that catch-and-release crap. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same as instead of going deer hunting, just going out to the woods and cold-cocking a deer than walking away. This catch-and-release nonsense has gone so far that it's turned fishing into a competitive sport with corporate sponsors where fish after fish is caught, maimed, and released back into the wild to have a disfigured life. You can even watch this so-called sport on TV. And yes, it is as exciting as actually fishing with all the edge-of-your-seat thrills, like sitting on the edge of your seat for hours waiting for a bite, and getting absolutely nothing. Yes, it really is that riveting, that exciting. But hey, sports fans got to watch something, right? With the NBA, NHL, and MLB not playing games due to the virus, sports fans need their sports. They've even, they're even down to watching European soccer matches with empty stands, or more creepily, cardboard cutouts and mannequins replacing the regular dummies who fork out way too much money to have a worse view of the competition than they can get at home while watching on TV, and drink a far cheaper beer with way shorter lines to the restroom. While much of the corporate news media was ignoring the record-setting summer temperatures in the Arctic that do not bode well for, you know, life on Earth, like us, every network cable and other eyes was lamenting a summer without the boring spectacle that is baseball. I know, I know, a lot of people are baseball fans, so there must be something to it. I've followed baseball since I was a kid, buying baseball cards and marveling at the statistics on the back of each card. But what hooked me in wasn't the game as much as the numbers. When it came to football, I was introduced to the sport through my dad betting 50 bucks on the the Minnesota Vikings to win the Super Bowl, and seeing as how they have been in four Super Bowls and still haven't won... You can surmise my father's investment did not pay off. It wasn't long after that he took me to a racetrack where the horses running in a circle did not intrigue me as much as the racing form with all of its numbers and tabulation of recent history, and you can choose your horse. To what degree I am a sports fan, then, is kind of up in the air. Yes, I enjoy gambling on sports, even being in fantasy leagues, but I rarely actually sit down and consume an entire sporting event. 
there are a couple of competitions that I will sit down and consume them from beginning to end, but they are few and far between and usually involve a brutal sport played on the Sabbath that I would rather not promote any more than it already is. The news media covering the news the media thinks is most important cannot wait to get sports back, cannot wait for their pointless distraction industry that consumes billions of wasted dollars let alone billions of wasted human hours during our limited time on this planet. We've, we're even being told that we need sports because it is an important part of American culture, and without it, we are somehow less than what we were with sports. I know this may sound odd to those of you who are not sports fans in any way, who loathe sports, but fans are so invested in this distraction that without it, they... They just don't know what to do with their lives. They spend so much time and money and effort on a pointless distraction that now, without that unnecessary and trivial use of their time, they do not know what to do with their lives. And they need sports back to give their lives meaning, which is something that is in short supply right now for sports fans, the meaning for their lives. Desperate, the news media is clamoring for the return of their industry's sports sector, even rushing the return of sports before fans can return to the stands, which now echo with recorded cheers from the past as if stadia are haunted by the ghosts of some ancient lost civilization that can never be recreated. With bread in short supply for some reeling from the economic downfall due to the virus, there is a rush to return the circus of sports to satisfy the masses and keep them occupied, to calm them down and get them back inside, quarantined by sports and off the streets filled with protests, to get back to the normal of ignoring the deadly issue of poverty while spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on your favorite team's latest jersey, jersey which changes as much as possible, throwing whatever tradition sports says it celebrates into the dustbin of history seemingly every year. The normal of the militarization of sports, which have been as militarized as the police forces that are cracking skulls of those who oppose them cracking skulls so regularly. That's what they want us to return to. Military flyovers of jets that cost billions in money taken from schools that teach and feed children, taken from health care that allowed a life lived without soul-crushing medical debt. That's the normal, we are told, awaits us with the return of sports. The rush to return could cause leagues to have false starts with delay of game penalties, resulting in a return to shutdowns and the rescheduling of yet another season. These fits and starts could be financially devastating to teams whose owners do not operate their clubs as a charity. They're all in it for the money, and there's lots of money to be made as organizations' values continue to skyrocket and governments continue to subsidize those billionaires' investments. Which means, in the rush to return, some teams may go belly up. They may go under. There, there are analysts who say baseball cannot survive a lost season, and others who believe starting and stopping could mean the end for other leagues that are not in as good as financial shape as baseball. As a kind of sports fan, I gotta say, good riddance. Sure, I've enjoyed countless hours of hanging out with friends and talking sports, playing in fantasy leagues, the camaraderie of enjoying a sporting event with others. Although when that happens, I usually shift my focus from the game to whatever unrelated conversation is happening at the time. But to be honest, I can do without sports, and I have in the past. For a few years, I quit consuming any sports, and it was great. It was liberating. I had time to do other things, even... Though, at the time, I wasn't doing much other than getting involved in the competitive sport of slacking. But man, was I good at slacking. Without sports keeping me inside glued to the TV, I could go out and do absolutely nothing, which was far more enjoyable than sitting inside for three hours staring at the TV. My conversations change from the distraction of sports to the otherworldly distractions that keep us occupied, but don't seem quite as trivial as a final score. I turned my OCD from sports to art, music, I started reading a lot more fiction, and I started having sex a lot more often. We do not need sports. We can live without them. If sports do not return until next year, and I think they will not return to any kind of regular season or anything even remotely resembling a regular season until at least Labor Day of 2021, so you can kiss next year's baseball, basketball, and football seasons goodbye too. We can actually live better lives and more important lives without sports. Many NBA players do not want to return because they believe it will distract them from the uprising against policing and police violence, which many players now see as far more important than any singular basketball game. Besides, as past This Is Held guest, the sports writer Robert Lipsight argues, 
If there is no football season this fall, college or pro, there is no second Trump term because if he cannot deliver football to his fans, I mean his supporters, then they will never forgive him. The fact that many literally cannot wait for the return of sports, even willing to risk their own lives to attend an event just for a bit of distraction, that we find any emptiness in our lives from a lack of trivial entertainment, it's just another reminder that this is hell coming up. Carceral feminism is at odds with protests against the police. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Those who commit violent crimes against women should be locked up in jail and the key should be thrown away. Okay, maybe not a life sentence, but any man who violently assaults a woman deserves jail time. Problem is, squaring that with support for the protests against police violence can be very, very complicated. Here to explain the how, what, and why of carceral feminism and a possible alternative. Law scholar Aya Gruber is author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aya. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Your, by the way, your phone connection sounds fantastic. Aya is professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender. And you can follow Aya on Twitter at Aya Gruber. That's A-Y-A-G-R-U-B-E-R. You write that much of feminism's language, carceral feminism's language, presumes the gender binary male and female. Throughout your book, you generically refer to abusers and rapists as he and victims as she. This is not to signal that gender and sex are biologically determined that women cannot engage in violence and men cannot suffer it, or that same-sex violence is trivial. To the contrary, I hope this book will illuminate the dark side of feminism's tendency to adopt man versus woman as a given, characterize violence as a product of individual men, and account poorly for intersecting identities. But shouldn't feminism be adversarial? Doesn't it need to be in confrontation with men in order to challenge patriarchy? So I think there is something there about challenging patriarchy. So I'm not being so postmodern that I'm saying there's no sense to make out of, you know, the quote unquote female identity, whether biologically or socially constructed. Um, I, you know, I think there is an argument to be made that we invest too much in those identities and that can have negative consequences. But that's not really what I'm taking on in this book. Um, so I do actually accept the gender binary and I do recognize feminism as a social justice movement that is particularly geared towards women and towards recognizing the ways in which women are oppressed in the state. Now, you asked whether, you know, feminism has to be adversarial against men and it kind of you know is like asking whether people who believe in racial justice have to be adversarial against whites um and i think there's a complicated answer to that i definitely think that um women to the extent that they are subordinated by structures in society should be adversarial to those structures just like racial justice um proponents are adversarial to white supremacy but that doesn't necessarily translate into using the powers of the state, which, you know, feminists and some of the most radical feminists like Catherine McKinnon have recognized to be sort of masculine in its comportment. So I don't think being adversarial to patriarchy translates into using the penal power of the state against individual men. Um, those I wouldn't characterize as the same thing. You also write that millennial feminism exists, as I once did, in an uncomfortable equilibrium of distaste for gender crimes and punishments. On one side of the scale is a Black Lives Matter-informed belief that policing, prosecution, and incarceration are racist, unjust, and too widespread. The side abhors the practice of putting human bodies in cages. On the other is a Me Too-informed preoccupation with men's out-of-control sexuality and abusive power. This side wants to get tough. To what degree, then, are current campaigns against racial injustice and those involving feminism at odds with each other, are they in conflict? 
So it's really interesting because what inspired this book and, and 20 years of research on the topic was this sense of a feminist you know, defense attorney or civil libertarian dilemma that I was feeling when I was a law student. So I knew I wanted to be a public defender and represent marginalized people against the awesome carceral power of the state. But I always had this nagging dread of defending batterers and rapists. And the reason I had this dread was because it was so ingrained in my head that prosecution of crime was this key to women's liberation. And it, it was just always in the ether, and I'm not sure you know where it came from. And I think a lot of the younger feminists of the past few years are kind of realizing this dilemma. They go to a Black Lives Matter protest on day one. On day two, they raise a mattress in protest of sexual assault and call for zero tolerance. And, you know, how do you square those things? Well, for me, the dilemma cleared up pretty quickly when I started practicing in a specialized domestic violence court that was built by feminists, right? This was supposed to be enlightened criminal law. And what I saw was day after day, the poorest among us, the most marginalized people of color were in a revolving door of incarceration that didn't serve victims very well. I had victims calling me and saying, look, I want some intervention in an abusive relationship, but I don't necessarily want him to go to jail for an extended period of time or my children to lose their father or my, you know, spouse to be deported. Um, and I saw prosecutors proceed with cases against women's wishes. Judges refused to lift stay away orders. And I saw quite a few of the women who called the police for help ending up getting arrested for domestic violence themselves or for other crimes. So even just after practicing for a few months, I realized that this automatic connection I had made between gender justice and prosecution was just wrong. We can recognize that gender um, crimes are a pressing issue, but it doesn't necessarily mean that prosecution, policing, and punishment within the American penal state is making things better, not worse. And I, you know, and it was just kind of like the rose-colored glasses came off, and I thought to myself, why for so many years have I made this assumption? And so I started looking into that in, in the book, and I think that there are a variety of factors why feminists and others have been so sanguine about criminal law when it's been this, you know, terribly costly social experiment for too many years. You said it doesn't serve people of color well, and it seems that this carceral feminism, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this carceral uh, feminism was driven by white middle-class feminism. So if this process doesn't serve poor people of color well, does this process serve middle-class women well? Is, is the reason that this process continues in the way it does, in this punitive nature, because it does work for middle-class whites? There is definitely um, something to that. I will say that you see throughout history a lot of internal divisions within gender justice movements, and I'm talking about from the very beginning of feminism in the late 19th century. You see suffragists and temperance advocates, largely white, middle and upper class northern women, squaring off with um, anti-lynching activists in the South and racial justice advocates in the South. And you see time and time again, the more mainstream and whiter brands of feminism winning out. Um, you see it in the 19th century, you see it in the late 20th century when you have the second wave of feminism and the domestic violence reform movement, you see feminists of color saying, well, wait a second, we don't think investing all our capital in lawsuits that are compelling police to be more active in people's homes and make more arrests, we don't think 
as women of color who have seen what the police can do to our neighborhoods, we don't think that that's the right way to go. And, and again, you see them lose out time and time again. So there is a racial story there, but I will say this. Some of the carceral aspects of feminist law reform cross party lines, uh, or, I'm sorry, cross racial lines. There were certainly a number of white feminists who were also skeptical of the alliance with the police and prosecutors and were very conflicted about it. There were some, not many, women of color who were uh, with the carceral program. So it's not just a story of race, but race had a ton to do with it. I'll give you an example. After the domestic violence arrest program really took off, and it was due to extreme activism on the part of feminists, very successful activism, where they convinced legislatures to adopt these pro-domestic violence arrest policies. And they also filed successful lawsuits that compelled the police to arrest, which interestingly, not only got rid of police's me mediation policies for domestic violence assaults, but also for all assaults. So it kind of stopped alternate dispute resolution within the uh, police back in the 70s. Um, but after these successful lawsuits, there started to be these sociological studies that uh, really looked at the efficacy uh, in terms of deterrence. And early studies found that maybe arrest was deterrent. But soon after the early studies, large-scale policing experiments found that actually inserting an arrest into the life of these couples uh, that were, you know, uh, violent couples, right, where the man was, was perpetrating violence, could actually escalate the violence. And it escalated the violence in a racially disparate way. Middle-class white women actually standed, uh, stood to benefit from mandatory arrest. Um, why? Well, I mean, there are a lot of theories of why, but number one, the, the man was more amenable to the deterrent effect of arrest because he was a middle-class man with a job. He saw that, you know, policing wasn't in his future. Any sort of level of the pain of policing maybe got him to change, but that could be the answer. Um, but the answer that a lot of experts pointed to was uh, middle-class women, white women, they don't have the same incentives uh, to leave abusers as poor women might, might have. So in other words, if you gave poor women money, if you gave them a better set of services, you could create the conditions where they could leave an abuser. And the same wouldn't work for middle-class white women because first of all, they didn't wanna be seen as welfare recipients and they didn't wanna be sort of categorized with uh, poor women of color. And they didn't wanna give up their, um, their lifestyle. So the thought was, well, if you interject an arrest into their lives, it's kind of the wake up call, then they'll leave their husband and they'll be able to get their money um, through child support and alimony. So it is a model that works for white women. And in fact, the study showed that you know, amongst white middle-class men, arrest did have a deterrent factor. However, in poor communities with high levels of unemployment, and more specifically, poor black communities with high levels of unemployment, um, arrest tended to have a very escalatory effect where it, it doubled over time the chances of there being a domestic arrest. So the dynamics were really different between the white woman model and the poor woman of color model. But white feminists insisted over and over again that there was no difference in domestic violence between somebody living in a mansion and somebody living on public assistance. And we had to treat it as a problem of patriarchy. And the way you treat it as a problem of patriarchy is jailing men. And it turned out to be a disaster for many women of color. I mean, even the thought that there's no difference between living in a mansion and living in public houses is absolutely ridiculous because women of color who stayed with their abusers and, and the abusers then got a conviction could actually lose eligibility for public housing. So it was just a completely different dynamic. But the racial and economically empowered feminists' vision of justice did take over.
So I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. And by the way, I just want to tell you, I, I think I wrote 65 questions for this interview. I've got to two of them so far because I keep having follow-up questions with everything that you're saying. Uh, so what explains those class uh, blinders? And what does it say to you about feminism? And, and well, let's just ask that first. So what explains those class blinders? And what does that say to you about that era of feminism, of carceral feminism, when they seem to have no sense of the impact that this would have on poor people of color? Well, I think it's, you know, and, and not being an expert on social movements in general, it seems to me that it would be something that every powerful social movement would have to grapple with. That is sort of the insider-outsider status. So the way you make change is having some power as a leader of a social movement. And often those who rise to the top are those who have uh, you know, certain aspects of them that allow them to be empowered. So, you know, if you are just trying to survive, it's probably harder for you to be at the helm of a political movement, writing, you know, being on the radio, you know, I could look at my own privilege here, although I'm, I'm definitely not a social movement leader by any, by any stretch of the imagination. So I think there's that. I think there was something very perspectival too. So, Interestingly, and this happens with a lot of uh, movements that deal with criminal law reform, we had women victims that were very present in a lot of these movements, especially the battered women's movement. A lot of the victims' advocates had been um, abused themselves and quite terribly abused, and they had a certain perspective about how abuse went on. And if they happened to be um, a middle-class woman who was hiding her abuse from her friends and family uh, because she was terribly embarrassed by it and it kind of wrecked this you know view that people might have had of her perfect life well she has a certain perspective of how that abuse might have been stopped so you can't blame people for having their own perspective and that's one of the challenges of a social movement being based so deeply in lived experience at the same time as you look to your lived experience, you have to also understand, you know, that you're subject to axes of subordination, but also axes of privilege. And trying to look beyond that, I think, was was very difficult, especially because there was something extremely pressing and extremely real in domestic violence victims' feelings of subordination. They had been horribly abused. And this abuse had a lot to do with women's oppression. So you can kind of understand why they were locked in that battle. And it was hard to hear the voices of other women and maybe women who were more marginalized than them saying, hey, let's do something different. So how much is the issue then an expansion of victims' rights? We recently had a guest on the show who was talking about the problems with the expansion of victims' rights when it comes to capital punishment and what an impact that can have on the decision of getting life in prison or getting a death sentence. So to what degree has the expansion of victims' rights had an impact? To what degree did that have an impact on the advancement of carceral feminism? So... In chapter four of my book, I actually devote a chapter to the relationship between victims' rights and um, feminist criminal law reform because, uh, you know, I characterize it as a symbiotic and mutually constitutive relationship. If you look up the National uh, Victims' Rights website, right, the national organization, it says in the history of victims' rights that feminism and women's rights was the inspiration for the victims' rights movement. They borrowed heavily from this idea that the criminal justice system should specifically be responsive to victims' needs and wants. Now, in the beginning, I think both feminism and I'm, you know, I'm thinking of second wave feminism and the anti-rape and anti-domestic violence movement and the victims' rights movement, which had a lot to do with parents of um, children, uh, you know, adult children mostly who had been killed, both of these movements envisioned that 
their intervention in the criminal justice system would be protecting victims from a system that was very unforgiving to them, that didn't notify them, that just, you know, treated them like an expendable witness, that didn't listen to them, that didn't take their desires into account. So really, when you look at the origin of the victims' rights movement, it was really about protecting victims from the mistreatment of police and prosecutors. But much like a lot of feminist criminal law reform, the victims' rights movement was born into a time in the United States where there was an increasing political tough-on-crime agenda. And very soon, you see you know, what victims want as not so much protection from prosecutors, but reversing Warren Court civil rights era uh, defendants' rights. So then the victims' movement comes... Uh, you know, the manifestation of the victims' rights movement and, to an extent, feminist criminal law reform movement become really about, you know, arresting more people, swiftly prosecuting them, not letting the defendants rely on, quote-unquote, technicalities, which are their constitutional rights, and ensuring that they get long sentences and ensuring that the victims get their say in the form of, um, you know, sort of emotion-evoking impact statements. So even though neither of these movements really started out being about putting more people in jail for a longer amount of time with fewer constitutional protections, they pretty quickly became about that. And, you know, borrowing from feminist activism, victims' rights movement and the politicians, right, the, the tough-on-crime politicians who were increasingly aligned with them, realized that publicizing vulnerable women or children subjected to crimes that invoke disgust, which are gender-based crimes, sexual-based crimes, was a really good way to whip up support for these tough-on-crime measures that would make them politically popular. So what you often had was sort of this perfect victim, right? Uh, this, uh, you know, middle-class white woman subjected to horrific abuse where the man, you know, had just no excuse and he was monstrous, pitted against deviants, and often in the movies, you know, um, unidentified, exchangeable, scary minority thugs. So those were the images that were going around at the time. And they were very gendered images. So, you know, the feminist criminal law reform movements and the victims' rights movements uh, really did move along parallel tracks, and they were very related. You mentioned patriarchy and carceral feminism's focus on patriarchy. We have had guests on the show, and I've seen writing by a lot of analysts and critics who argue that if the focus is only, like for instance, in the protests against police violence, if the focus is only on racism, overcoming racism is something that's incredibly hard to, if not impossible, to achieve. It's an individual act in certain circumstances. It can be institutional and systemic, of course, but it's an, also an individual act. And therefore, people want to, you know, they focus on the individual act instead of the systemic or institutional problem. Therefore, if you are only focusing on racism, it can be a distraction from the other things that can get done, from the other issues, whether it's imperialism, settler colonialism, capitalism, whatever the issue is. How might carceral feminism's focus on patriarchy potentially distract them from issues that poor people of color might be facing? So... I think there's a way to be a feminist where it's not either or, but you see that the ravages of late stage capitalism actually don't distribute evenly, but they fall disproportionately on the shoulder of single mothers, working women, poor women, and women of color. So if women are bearing the brunt of many inequalities in society, why would we then embrace a neoliberal criminal system that was the political mouthpiece of why 
we needed no governance in any other place, no social safety net, that this was the solution to any social problem, criminal law. Why would we engage with that system that is so destructive to women in other ways for the very meager prize of seeing individual men and again, mostly the most marginalized men among us, disproportionately African-American and Latino men, locked up in jail. Why would that be a prize that is worth sacrificing so many's, so many women's interests otherwise? So I don't even think that, you know, if one were to do a distributional analysis, even focusing strictly on patriarchy, strictly on women, right? Women, gender binary, we're going to focus right on them. I don't think if you did a really thorough and thoughtful distributive analysis, you would come up with, hey, let's invest like a ton of money in arresting, prosecuting and jailing individual poor men. You just wouldn't come up with that, which is why I tried so hard to tell the story of how this thing we now call carceral feminism came about. It wasn't just feminists saying, okay, like we really think this is the best way to dismantle the patriarchy. It was a confluence of factors that have been ingrained for so long. This idea that there is massive criminal law impunity towards men, and this is the key to reversing gender hierarchy. That has been such a concept of faith among women for so long and for so many reasons that I thought it was really important to expose it. So, and, and let me say one thing about um, the current defunding protests, which I think are in many ways rightly grounded in racial identity. Um, I, you know, I, I think we have ample evidence out there and it's just the, the level of education on racial injustice has exploded over the past three weeks and that's an amazing thing. So I think there is ample evidence out there that Policing, prosecution, imprisonment is a deeply racist, institutionally racist, historically racist phenomenon. Um, but it is certainly not only a racist phenomenon. When you look at the history of policing in, for example, union busting and protecting private property in managing undesirables in the form of vice police. So there is such a story to policing imprisonment and punishment that yes is deeply racialized but also goes beyond that even in the present day police disproportionately harass maim and kill african americans but they also harass maim and kill plenty of whites and again the most marginalized whites among us so i think the reason that um you know the racial story has so much traction is we have seen a real and um, obvious regression of racial equality, not just in the Trump administration, but since really the 1960s, 1970s. That is just obvious and horrific. Um, but at the same time, I think that it is easier for many people to package their complex structural claims and justice claims in the form of identity claims. Um, it's easier for people to get a hold of racism, sexism, you know, bad men, bad white people than it is to sort of look at all the moving parts, which is very complicated. You know, it, it's too complicated for Twitter. It's very hard to tweet out. So I think that's just a fact of the world we're in right now that identity claims um, seem to take precedence. But I think we also have to be careful about just dismissing identity claims as, oh, you're just, you know, you're just playing the race card or you're just playing the gender card. Because I think people are using identity claims as a placeholder for really complex analyses of these structures um, that have produced this, this absurd level of inequality in our society. We've talked to James Foreman Jr. about this. We've talked to Cedric Johnson about this, about how black politics are not a monolithic thing. They're not a shared thing. You write about how there is no one feminism that's not a well, feminism is a monolithic politics either. So is the divide within feminism uh, the same divide that we're seeing in all politics right now? And that's from viewing uh, the, the welfare state as the safety net or the carceral state as a security blanket? Is that the same divide that we're seeing everywhere throughout politics, including within feminism? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, James Foreman Jr. was actually my training director when I was a public defender. So we go <laughs> way back. And I, and, I, and I absolutely love Locking Up Our Own. I think it's a, a fantastic book yeah. and a careful book, right? Um, it is a book that wants to go beyond the black-white binary, the male-female binary, that, you know, there are good and bad players. And if we could just identify the good players, then we've solved the problem. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that most activists, most people who are deeply concerned about these injustices, they want to go past that binary, right? Like that binary may be, um, as I just said, pumped up because social media doesn't permit dissertations on these issues. But absolutely, there have always been internal and external contestations within all these social justice movements from the very beginning. I mean, if you just look at the birth of second wave feminism, which was probably the most powerful and generative feminist movement, roughly beginning in the early 70s and lasting through the 90s, um, you know, feminists ranged from liberals who really wanted equal rights and the rights to work to lesbian separatists who wanted to upend uh, this idea of marriage and gender binaries and question identity to uh, black feminists who were anti-poverty activists. And they had very, very different agendas. Just like you saw a stark difference between, for example, the Black Panthers and the NAACP, right? So the, there were always internal contestations and very, very different views of justice. And there were overlaps, right? They all look like Venn diagrams. But one thing I did notice in my book was that despite all the complexity, all the contested notions of justice and identity and how law works and whether law is a savior and whether we operate inside or outside systems. One thing I saw over and over with feminist activism is that some of the most powerful groups continually returned to criminal law and that criminal law shored up their power as their participation in criminal law shored up the power of the carceral system. And it was really this symbiotic relationship. And it happened over hundreds of years. So I do think, despite all the internal contestation and the different branches and the ways that many feminists just didn't even touch criminal law, there is a story to be told about this continual choice to engage with criminal law and how that series of choices over decades both shaped modern feminism and shaped the modern criminal justice system. So that's really the, the story I'm telling. And, and that story isn't to say that that's all feminists did or feminists are the only cause of the carceral state. That would just be ridiculous. But it is to say that there is a connection that was meaningful and important um, to both these institutions. We are speaking with law scholar Aya Gruber, author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. You can follow Aya on Twitter at Aya Gruber. You write how rape law and policy enabled a lynching epidemic in the post-Civil War South, and you touched on lynching earlier in our conversation. This race-rape connection persists. Candidate Donald Trump launched his campaign with racialized rape fear-mongering, declaring that Mexican immigrants were rapists and promising to protect American women with a wall. Later, he justified his administration's horrific treatment of asylum seekers as deterrence of migrant caravans where women were raped at levels that nobody has ever seen before, according to Trump. Zero tolerance necessarily occurs against the backdrop of rape laws, racist past and present. Is the threat of rape a racist dog whistle? And what happens to our thinking on rape when it does become covert political code enforcing something else, in this case, racism? It is a very important thing to keep in mind whenever you engage in dialogue about zero tolerance for rape, um, that rape has a long 
really endemically racialized history in the United States. The foremost expert on the history of rape law is Estelle Friedman. And she said that, you know, conceptions of rape cannot be separated from the post-Civil War South. It just cannot. So I think that's really important because even back in Reconstruction era rape reform, and what people don't seem to realize is one of the most successful rape reform campaigns that feminists ever launched occurred in the 1880s when uh, temperance activists went on this wildly successful campaign of raging, raising the age of consent to 17 and 18. It was, you know, around 10 at the time and basically outlawing teenage sex. Um, now they did it for feminist reasons because you had a lot of young girls being preyed on by seducers and rapists, but also for moral reasons. They figured that underage sex was something that led to licentiousness and prostitution, and those were uh, two no-nos within the temperance movement. So this was both a feminist movement and in ways a moralistic movement. Um, but one amazing thing happened was that the champion of this movement, which was this sort of iconic leader of the temperance union, Francis Willard, got into a really famous dispute with Ida B. Wells over this rape reform program. Ida Wells, they both happened to be touring Britain, right? Ida Wells on behalf of the anti-lynching movement and um, Francis Willard on behalf of temperance. And they were trying to you know, convince the good liberals in the, in the tea rooms in, in Britain to support their, their agendas. Well, Ida Wells accused Francis Willard of racism and not just racism, but inciting lynch mobs in the South with her rhetoric about racists, uh, rapists, sorry, with her rhetoric about rapists that she was using to, you know, push for these age of consent programs. Um, and so she tried to get the British aristocracy to call out Francis Willard. In turn, Francis Willard accused Ida Wells of being anti-woman because Ida Wells was claiming that the women who were accusing black men of rape in the South were liars and calling women liars was a misogynistic thing to do. So we see this debate, right? This clash play out 120 years ago, right? Over 120 years ago. And it seems to continue today where we have this sense that the way to be feminist and the way to um, you know, be good on issues of gender violence is hashtag believe all women, you know, hashtag zero tolerance for rape and me too. But at the same time, the specter of the rape, especially of white women, has long been used to accrue carceral power to the state and as a tool of racial domination. It's like the perfect combination of gender stereotyping and racist fear-mongering and sex panic, right? It, it, it always had that tendency. So I think, you know, one of the messages I have to, you know, a group I'm calling millennial feminists, but I really mean just young activists and young feminists is it is fine to counter violence against women. But even outside of the carceral state, if we look at sort of Title IX and the campus rape panic, if you are invoking the language of monstrous predatory rapists and thinking that that is just feminist language that doesn't have bag baggage, you're wrong. It necessarily has baggage and it necessarily operates within a certain history and in a certain structure. And we see it operating right now. One of the most popular, you know, sort of gotcha questions to the defunding, quote, uh, defunding slash police abolition movement is 
what about rapists, right? So if you don't have police, what about rapists? Um, and, you know, a lot of the policing abolitionists are coming back with, well, you know, police are rapists themselves and they don't really solve rapes anyway. You know, that, that is, that is you know, a perfectly fine answer. But I, but I think that the person asking the what about rapist question can just say, well, then we need more and better policing in this space. And that's kind of what feminists have always said. Well, yeah, if police are bad, we need more and better policing in that space. And, and so my response to the what about rapist question isn't just like in its current iteration, policing is bad at dealing with gender crime. It, I, I guess it's more of a structural Foucauldian and historical response. Policing as an institution is not meant to bring gender justice. It will not do it. The, the policing carceral concepts of monstrous men who need to be jailed necessarily comes within a structure with all this baggage and it is not well used to serve women's interests. And, and so I think that, you know, women could say, you know, campus sexual assault is a horrible thing, but they still have to be careful about the way they go about characterizing it and the solutions they propose because they can invoke this very long and very deliberate history of racial and other subordination. I want to make sure that listeners understand that in the conclusion of your book, you also offer an alternative. You offer the alternative of neo-feminism. Is neo-feminism, and I'm sure this is far way too oversimplification of it. Is neo-feminism a focus off of the individual actors and actions and a shift to the system that created these actors and actions? Is neo-feminism essentially a challenge to the impact that neoliberalism has had on feminism? Yes, I do think that neo-feminism is definitely um, a move away from how the mutually constitutive relationship between feminism and incarceration uh, has made feminism more carceral and more like that system, uh, more like a system where you believe that invoking this program of putting individual bad actors in jail is the key to gender justice. So in that sense, it's definitely a step back from that neoliberal criminal system. So I think the methodology of neo-feminism is very simple and it comes from, you know, post-structuralist critical legal theory, thinking about trying to do distributional analyses of programs. So instead of imagining that law works in a linear fashion, any law, not just criminal law, that if you have a goal in mind, right, your goal is to end rape, and you have a law that says, um, you know, if you rape, you'll get sued or go to jail, that, you know, because the law was created in the name of ending rape, it actually will have that effect. I think whenever you insert law into, into the world, you have a real responsibility to look at the world as it is and try to do in good faith a careful prediction of how the power flows in society will be di disrupted by inserting law into it and who's gonna benefit and gain from that. And so that's very different than saying, I've got a problem in mind, I'm gonna insert some law there and I'm just gonna presume that it solves the problem. So neo-feminism is feminist in the sense that I say, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to have your agenda be woman-centric, right, to be gendered. You can say there is this category of people called women who suffer a unique form of discrimination, and, and me, as an activist, I'm concerned with that discrimination. I think that's perfectly fine. But when you are figuring what to do about it, um, A, I, you know, really would counsel caution if what you immediately jump to is sort of punishing bad individual apples. And two, even if you're doing structural changes, you have a real accountability to look at how those reforms are gonna operate in, a, in the real world. And our real world is one of extreme inequality, 
racialized mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the neo-feminist methodology. Um, and then I sort of point to some things I think are sort of in the neo-feminist vein, which are, you know, activists who are looking at like different ways of, of uh, sending kids messages about sexuality um, that, you know, maybe are more enlightened and can reduce the fear and the social stigma that lead to miscommunication in a lot of these campus rape incidents. Um, I look to Insight, which is a movement uh, amongst prison abolitionist feminists to address violence against women without necessarily engaging the prison industrial complex. And I point to some other things. So really what I'm asking feminists to do is not to abandon or take a break from feminism, but to really um, look at different ways of getting at the problem of violence against women that don't tap into a very long and problematic history of criminalization and really in, in the in all earnestness, right? Like the best way you can try to be accountable to the costs of your legal program. That's that's the best we can ask people to do. If they are going to be law reformers, they're going to be in the media promoting programs. The best we can ask them to do is to be accountable to the costs of those programs. Um, and I and I think one of the big problems with feminist activism is, you know you identify a problem, right? So the problem is violence against women. You describe it in the most spectacular terms, right? In order to drum up political support. So the so you describe victimhood in spectacular terms. You describe the crime in spectacular terms. You describe the perpetrators in spectacular terms. Um, and, you know, these are definitely inherently racialized, inherently classed. So you describe, these crimes against women in spectacular terms. And then you spend a lot of time on that description. You spend way less time on figuring out how this law reform, which is inevitably some form of discipline of the man or punishment or way to get money from the man, um, you spend a lot less time being accountable to all the ways that that law might distribute equities differently and just assume that, oh, I told you about this spectacular crime, this law will be the solution to that, so you should support it. I, I think that's the way the politic is gone, and I think that's why we see that criminal law has become a preferred method of achieving gender justice in many circles. And yesterday we were talking to sociologist Musa Algarbi, and he was saying the same thing about spectacular. Uh, the spectacular reporting of crime leads to over-policing. Always focusing on the spectacle and the most brutal of crimes often leads to over-policing. And I just want to point out real quick that uh, you also write that I propose the following as a basic tenet of modern feminist thought. Criminal law is a last, not first resort. And I would just suggest that maybe that should be something that everybody should be considering at all times. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with law scholar Aya Gruber, author of The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. You can follow Aya on Twitter, at Aya Gruber. Aya, what we do with uh, for all of our guests is we have our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, there were dissenting voices expressing alarm at feminism's carceral drift, but they were muted out by muted by law and order messages from within and outside feminism. By the close of the millennium, the stalwart suit-wearing SVU prosecutor who throws the book at rapists had replaced the bra burner as the symbol of women's empowerment. Which leads me to the very obvious question, Aya, is carceral feminism all Hillary Clinton's fault? Well, I was actually thinking of... Um Oh, what's her last name? Olivia from Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia Munn. Yeah. No, no, it's not. Uh, what is that? Oh, anyway, I anyway, was yeah, thinking yeah. of the, uh, yeah, I'm glad that we don't know her. I'm glad that we don't know her name. That's a really good sign. <laughs> right. So, so it's interesting because um, there is not a uh, a neat left 
right political divide on this. And I think, you know, people have been realizing this for many, many years. It's why Clinton in 2005, Bill Clinton in 2015 went in front of the NAACP and, and just simply admitted about the Clinton crime bill, the 1994 crime bill. We were wrong, right? It, it was a very deliberate program that insiders at the time called the Biden-Schumer strategy to wrest the popular crime control issue from the Republicans. This was a democratic strategy. Um, and VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, was a really important part of that crime control political strategy. In fact, Bill Clinton called VAWA a, quote, brilliant part of the crime control bill. So, yeah, I mean, there is there is democratic blame here to go around. I mean, the politics of tough on crime was not just a Republican thing. And the politics of feminism in tough on crime made it even more complicated because when you look at a situation like, for example, Bernie Sanders, he was extremely opposed to the 1994 Clinton-Biden crime bill and this idea of putting 100,000 more cops on the street and taking money out of federal programs so you could build jail cells. And he said, we can't, you know, I'm making over 60 new death penalty offenses. You know, Bernie said, we cannot incarcerate our way out of problems. But the ban on assault weapons and VAWA and the Inclusion of Violence Against Women Act moved Bernie to vote for the Clinton crime bill, three strikes and all, right? And he did it in the name of protecting women. So these were very complicated issues and it's easy to sort of Monday morning quarterback them. But, you know, the Democratic Party, after the Willie Horton ad, the very racist Willie Horton ad and Dukakis's utter defeat, was afraid of the, quote, Hortonizing of the entire Democratic Party and that they would just completely lose. And so this was their strategy. And so, yeah, a lot of our mass incarceration problems can be laid at, you know, Hillary, I don't I don't know how much influence she had on it sort of back then or on the VAWA part of it, but it can definitely be laid at Democrats and Bill Clinton and Joe Biden's feet. That is just the reality of the situation. Um, you know, but again, it's easy to sort of from the place I'm sitting say, you know, I would have never done that. I would never spectacularize thing. But it's human nature. I mean, if you look at the Black Lives Matter, defund policing movement, we are also relying on spectacular police killings. I mean, it's it's true that these killings are horrific. But police killings in the larger scheme of policing still are pretty rare. I mean, they're horrific, but rare. And where a lot of the pathology comes is from everyday stop and frisk, everyday surveillance, everyday interactions with people in poor neighborhoods where the police exercise um, oppressive authority. And it's in these everyday oppressions that we see the sort of scale of the inequality, the invisible inequality. And so I think we have to keep our eye on that too, but I just think it's human nature to be moved emotionally by the spectacular. So, you know, I, I you know, Democrats did it. They spectacularized crime. They, they, got the crime issue. They wrestled it away from the Republicans. Feminists did it too. They spectacularized crime. They um, had their reforms ascend in an era where crime rates were going down, but incarceration rates were exponentially increasing. And it, it, and it was political and we're left with the fallout from it. But, you know, one can hope we're not stuck in hell and times are changing and People are understanding that we have to look at these things in a really complex manner and we have to work really hard to undo the just massive amounts of inequality and 
despair that we see around us. Right. Not just not focusing on only the spectacular and and not being distracted by the spectacular from the problems of everyday policing. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fantastic book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. I is professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender, and you can follow her on Twitter at Aya Gruber. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question, Mel, is what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to the whole this whole time? This week's winner gets a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet us, tweet it to us, and you got to send your response to us by end of show Thursday. Because we're going to be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show as well as hey, on I can Thursday. Knock, I can knock some out now. All right. So let's hear them now then. Okay. This week's question from hell is, uh, huh, what has Joe Biden up to lately? What has Joe Biden been up to lately? Uh, okay. So let me scroll. Well, people are a lot of comments here. Stephen S. says, shopping for the perfect mask made of Navajo hair. Oh. <sighs> Wally R says, plowing through that stack of Wilmington news journals next to his recliner to catch up on the daily jumbles. Keeps him sharp. <laughs> Glenn H says, in the middle of a story about leg hair, he started two weeks ago. Oh, gross. Uh, Bradley R says, staying healthy by running to the right of Trump on Venezuela. <laughs> Garrett S says, his replacement clone is taking a bit longer than usual to grow. Please be patient. Uh, Jack W says, he'll have you know, Boppo, the zapping of Charleston shoe for six seconds in the microwave is the Goldilocks length so that molars aren't compromised, and that's right as rain. Really? I am interested in your Charleston shoe yeah, microwave. Jack, that was supposed to be a joke, but I think uh, Chuck and I are both intrigued by this. <laughs> uh, Sam S says, practicing walking down ramps. <laughs> what has Joe Biden been up to lately? Walter B says, the first floor. <laughs> Pete V says, Ouch. your mom. Thanks, Pete. Oh, good Lord. I'm going to get this bar closed down. Back. I'm going to get this bar closed back down. Joshua L. says, training every cop in the country to shoot the legs. What has Joe Biden been up to lately? Andrew S. says, look, fat, I've been here with Corn Pop. He's a bad dude, helping me practice with my switchblade and bike chain to slabish the waz. Wow. Wilmington Autonomous Zone. Wow. Come on, man, I'm starting the revolution. Wow. Shane M. says, reading Fritz, that's it, the Walter Mondale story, <laughs> then dozing off in the hammock. Chris L says, mostly just classic cartoon napping. You know where the bubble forms in and out of his mouth with each with each, with each honk shoe. <laughs> Never seen a, snee- or a, a snore referred to as a honk, honk shoe. shoe. I like that. Yeah. Uh, what has Joe Biden been up to lately? Aaron D says, accumulating goodwill by not campaigning. <laughs> that is accumulating goodwill. Ronaldo M says, mostly keeping his mouth shut and watching Donald slowly melt. Mm. Karen R says, ear hair farming. <laughs> <laughs> Karen. Uh, Eric T says, Lazarus Pit trying to get back some semblance of 2016 lucidity by mainlining adrenochrome. Margie says, Joe Biden is dead. This is a hologram that we are seeing. Nikki says, Venice Beach. Chris H says, corn popping, porn hopping, skin popping, bee bopping. Joe Biden's the man. A couple more. Billy D says, I caught him this morning on Breitbart on, on a Breitbart article with a clip delivering what they titled a sluggish response to Trump's clownish pandemic mishandling, and I almost didn't watch figuring it's Breitbart. And they probably slowed down the clip to make Biden look even worse than he actually is at public speaking, but then forced myself to watch it, and he did seem heavily sedated. And while trying to display gravity and grimness of topic, he he instead came across apathetic and somewhat bored. Fabio L says, trying to get through Obama's call screener to ask him to be vice president. And that's all the questions from hell. You still have a couple of days to let us know. What has Joe Biden been up to lately? Uh, tomorrow on tomorrow's show, what's happening, Alex? Uh, Adam Goodman is going to talk about his book, The Deportation Machine. Oh, yeah, Deportation Machine. I forgot. And you've already emailed that to me. I know you have. I've seen it in my inbox. Tomorrow, I will be talking about how we are seeing the return on Wednesday, this week, 24 hours from now, the return of indoor seating in bars will be allowed here in Illinois, and I'll share my thoughts on going downstairs for a drink at the bar, and they're not happy thoughts, sadly. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted at 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's question. Well, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing, and thanks to Aya Gruber, who was our guest today. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell.
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.